0: Hello again, this is Jeff Sachs of Atit and Web Yeshiva with another episode of our uh, Educators Book Club podcast. Uh, again, I'm sitting with our friend, uh, my former colleague, uh, no stranger to listeners of the podcast, Dr. Joel Finkelman, this time to talk about his own book, the recently released Strictly Kosher Reading, Popular Literature and a Condition of Contemporary Orthodoxy, published recently by the academic studies press I'll just mention now you can visit www.strictlykosherreading.blogspot.com where he's put up uh, some material about the uh, about the book and you can download some of the front matter and the preface and the table of contents and there's also a link there to to buy the book which which we're recommending people do sure so tell us a little bit about this book this book emanates from uh, you know a long time interest that, that you have in the Haredi, or the ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, population, uh, specifically the North American ultra-Orthodox Jewish uh, population, and their involvement in popular culture. So tell us a little bit about the map well, out
1: for us. The, 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 the book started off from a long time interest. I found myself grabbing um, parenting guides, diet guides, uh, fiction. Um, off the shelf of uh, local Jewish bookstores or from friends, and discovering this kind of intriguing combination of uh, the traditional and the modern, and uh, about 10 years ago, it's hard to believe it was 10 years ago, um, I got a small grant from the Hebrew University and from another, uh, from the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture um, to try to map the territory a little bit about where this kind of literature is coming from. How did it happen that uh, the Jewish tradition that has you know, thousands of years of, of books, of halakha, of Jewish philosophy, of spirituality, uh, of poetry, of liturgy, um, all of a sudden is now producing these kinds of spy novels, uh, parenting manuals, um, diet guide guides, um, uh, you know, short biographies, weekly magazines, um, which it kind of points to this odd irony that you have a community that is committed ideologically to the idea that the tradition is binding, and that is the, the norms and values of our lives are defined by the tradition. And yet, all of a sudden, these are being presented in brand new literary forms that uh, that are clearly influenced by the outside. And that tension, to me, makes this kind of literature a great lens into looking at the cultural dynamics of, of the contemporary right wing, yeshivish, black hat, moderate the community um, in North America where the community for the most part is more acculturated more has a more broad general education than in Israel and so you have this kind of great laboratory for attention between acculturation and, uh-huh. and isolation so like do you, from from what point do you date the rise of this
0: genre of
1: well, the, the real critical I mean there's a lot of back history there's the Yiddish press. Uh, of Eastern Europe, there's the works of people like Marcus Lehman in, in the German Orthodox community in the 19th century. Um, it's not as if Jews only wrote, you know, high culture over the course of years. Not that the distinction between a high and low culture is terribly coherent, but for the sake of the conversation, um, it's not that Jews have only written the high culture. Um, but really in terms of the North American community, the Israeli community, the transition is in the 70s mm-hmm. um, with the publication of Art Scrolls first commentaries on Torah which were, you know, from what I understand through the grapevines, surprised even the publishers um, that became, you know, super popular accessible um, uh, clear, well laid out, um, and with a particular kind of religious agenda and also over the 70s, the much older publishing house, Feldheim um, which was had been an Orthodox uh, publishing house for decades, but it started drifting away from publishing things like Abraham Joshua Heschel's, you know, historical studies of Hasidu, right. um to publishing much more popular, much more accessible, much more, um, and often much more right wing or Haredi, uh ideology. Um, and th- that transition later on, Tarbon Press and other publishers got into the build, got into the business. Yeah. Um, uh, in the '60s also uh, was the beginning of the Jewish Observer, which was I the late and lamented Jewish Observer, uh, <laughs> the Zichron uh, um which was kind of crushed in uh, a couple of years ago by between the internet and m- more funner magazines like Mishpacha or and now Ami or Bina. Um, so, the Jewish observer is no longer with us, but for decades it was really the voice of Abu uh, Israel as a way of getting their getting their ideas out there in a way that could be kind of read on the sofa in Shabbat afternoon uh-huh. when when we
0: talk about popular literature i mean there are many different genres under discussion here, from a magazine, even even journalism uh, to I wouldn't say Pulp Fiction, but let's take the example you gave of of spy novels. Right. So if somebody were to pick up one of these uh, Haredi spy novels, uh, how is it going to feel different than so whatever the uh, the so secular equivalent is going to be? You know,
1: the basic outline of a of a Haredi thriller novel is going to be identical to the to the canned plot of any other thriller novel. You have this innocent person who's going about his business who all of a sudden discovers that against his will and without his knowledge he's in the middle of this grand international plot to take over the world or overthrow the government or to take over all the energy supply. Or in the case of one novel that I studied to smuggle a nuclear weapon in from the former Soviet Union uh, so that uh, terrorist forces could use it against Israel. And all of a sudden this innocent individual has to figure out what his place is in this grand, you know, this grand nefarious scheme, has to save the world, Uh, although in the art scroll version, uh, he's not going to get the girl um, (laughs) in the end. Um, uh, So that kind of basic plot is going to be there and the international travel and the intrigue and the mystery and the last minute plot change and the person you think is innocent is really guilty and vice versa. Um, What's different is that the heroes are going to be yeshiva gods. Um, or, um, uh, and the characters are going to be in, stand in some kind of relationship to Haredi culture Jewish, uh, or Jewish religion and one of the subtexts of the book is going to be kind of ideological debate about what's the balance between isolation what happens to this poor yeshiva kid who'd rather be sitting over Kitsos and now finds himself running off to, uh, save, you know, the world. to save the world so so what's the tension this, this book is going to end up exploring the tension between the ideal isolated quiet life of this yeshiva guy and a desire for adventure and mm-hmm. is it good to be adventurous is it good to be heroic is it good to, or is it better to be sitting over the gemara um, yeah, but since it is a
0: spy novel and it still has to have you know, the elements of plot which have to move and it has to be interesting if someone going to want to read it so, ultimately, he is going to go out and right. try to save the world. So, that's and one of the great tensions. Is that viewed as... Does that make the novel uh, suspect in the eyes of...
1: Uh... Um, to a certain degree, yes. There was opposition to some of these novels. But I think that's the great tension. Meaning, the Haridi. What's the interest in creating Haridi spy novels? Why bother? Right? Why, why write fiction at all? And if you're going to write fiction... It's one of the great questions know, of culture. I suppose. But... Um, But, you know, and if you're going to write fiction, why this kind of fiction? So part of the answer is, listen, it's either that, or they're going to read, you know, Dan Brown, um, uh, or they're going to read, you know, uh, John Grisham, or what have you, with, where they are going to get the girl in the end, and there's going to be sexuality in the plot, and there's going to be all kinds of other things that we don't like, and we're not going to be able to reinforce our values uh, within this novel. But you can't do that without imitating the genre. You can't write Mm -hmm. a spy novel without writing a spy novel. And the spy novel is going to include values like, it's kind of cool to be adventurous, Mm -hmm. and believe your your valid of your Beit Midrash, and run out there in the world, and grab a gun, and and international intrigue, which in theory... But at the end, there's the return to the Beit Midrash. Of course, of course. And that helps solve some of the tension. But the tension doesn't go away, it's built in. And some of the controversy around some of these novels is exactly around that. Mm-hmm. You know, people who would write into the Jewish Observer or other venues and say, "I want my kids. I don't want my kids to think that, you know, guns and weapons and strength is what's really important. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't want them to be tempted by that."
0: Mm-hmm. How much of the whole phenomena is a function of a, a, a new, a new organ, new media? Being marshaled to advance an ideology, and how much of it is is motivated, frankly, by uh, commercial interests. In other words, in other words, like suddenly, uh, fell time publishers or some other publisher, you know, will wake up and realize there's a market out there for a certain type of book. We're going to produce it, and that's a perfectly legitimate. We are capitalists, after all. Uh, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, uh, desire. Um, just like in the Haredi world, the Orthodox world. Once upon a time, the kosher restaurant was, you know, a pizzeria that sold some salad and a deli. Uh, and at some point, also in the 1970s, 1980s, the same period you mentioned earlier, somebody realizes we can make high-end kosher gourmet food, and you can go into a strictly kosher restaurant. Uh, where the quality will be undistinguishable from any restaurant. And in fact, they sometimes try to hide the fact or, or downplay the fact that it's, it's, it's kosher to draw in uh, a larger crowd. And once the market realized that by producing this cultural product, whether it's a plate of food or a book or a
1: magazine or, or, or DVDs. So I, I think that the, those, they're totally the two elements you're talking about the ideological, pedagogic, Um, uh, cultural drive to get across certain values and to use media, new media to get across certain values is totally indistinguishable from the profit motive. Mm -hmm. Um, To the point that I had one author tell me she preferred to remain anonymous but I had one author tell me that she thinks that the publishers have no ideological motivations limits whatsoever on what they'll publish. The only limits on what they'll publish are motivated by market forces. Since they're part of their branding, is that this is kosher stuff? Uh-huh. They can't include sex, not because they're opposed to talking about sex, but because that's going to fail their branding. Sex. Yeah. And then once they lose their, their brand name as being kosher, then you know, then uh-huh. so the two can't be so there's, a, there's
0: a, a a type of self censorship to keep to keep your product within the market.
1: Right, right. In the same way that you know Nike is never going to make a fifteen dollar shoe not because $15 shoes don't sell, but because it would affect their branding. Mm-hmm. Um, and and especially, there have been some... That, you know, I mean, that the point of view of this anonymous author, There might, might be a little cynical. Uh, others have disagreed with me. Others who had trouble, other authors who I spoke to who had trouble getting some of their stuff published said they thought it's not just economics, it really is ideological. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not taking a stand in that argument. But one of the interesting things that's happened in, in sociology of religion is this kind of turn-to-market models, okay. especially in the free and open you know, religious economy of North America, okay. where there's freedom of religion. So which religion is going to succeed? The religion that markets itself successfully. You yeah. can't market yourself successfully without, without access to media. Um, okay. And popular literature became one of those media by, yeah. which, by which right-wing orthodoxy in America was able to get out there and say, this is the Torah approach to parenting. And if you're a suburban, you know, nuclear family that's concerned about raising good kids, who are going to be Shomer Shabbat, who are going to be part of the Orthodox community, Um, so you're going to turn to, you know, this book, and you're going to lay out your 20 bucks for a book by an expert, or a self-proclaimed expert, who's going to tell you, this is how Judaism does things, this is the Torah way. Um, and, And if you succeed in selling enough books, so then the community is going to say, yeah, that really is the Torah way. Yep. But you're only going to succeed in selling books if you offer what the community
0: wants. Right. How much? Um, I mean, much of the discussion in the book centers on, on what I'll call old media, print media, books, magazines, uh, uh, cookbooks, hand you know if, if something you buy with sheaves of paper between two covers. Mm-hmm. Totally um, anachronistic. Uh, right, <laughs> right. As the book itself is a book with a picture of a book on the cover. Uh, you know, it has it come out in Kindle? Uh, okay. No, oh, but, okay. you know, so, uh, there's that little
1: thing on Amazon where you can click and tell the publisher that you want uh, to the um,
0: uh, There is some passing discussion of uh, of the internet uh, and the web. How does that factor into the question? Because there you have more ambivalence not just about the content, but about the medium itself.
1: Right. Um, so there's a fair amount of ambivalence about the medium also in the books, and there's some ideological discussion about well, no, the in, other words, in other words, the, the right. Orthodox world, the ultra Orthodox world is opposed to
0: books as, as as a as a content yeah. delivery. Well, in system. terms
1: of the internet, so I did see a very interesting blog post recently by uh, by an interesting fellow here in Israel, Shlomo Pochinsky, who just finished his doctorate on the uh, the Hebron yeshiva and, and the Varna yeshivas uh, here in Eretz Israel in the interwar period. And he's got you know, several feet in several different worlds. And he says the key distinction within the Harili community in Israel today are between those who have internet and those who don't. Because if you don't have internet, then all of your media is censored, and all of your media is edited, and all of your media is constructed in the way one chapter where I deal with the, the role of the editors of the Jewish Observer in constructing whole issues in order to make certain ideological points. Um, but, if once you have internet, so the con- the, the, the discussion is wide open mm-hmm. um, and 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 things are much less censored, and things are much more open and you have much less of a top down kind of authoritative uh, conversation. What are the long term impact of that i don 't think that anybody really knows, but you can find 3 d discussions on the internet of all kinds of things that will not be discussed in print, mm-hmm. and not only. You know the anti-orthodox bloggers who are out there, legitimately and often rightly pointing out, you know, I don't know, protection of of, of, of sexual abuse or or other, you know, uh, dusting under the rug, right? Who are you know who you know who are taking the dust out from under the rug, mm-hmm. uh, but even you know you can find open uh, discussions of. Uh, orthodox sexual life. You can find open discussions of the advantages and disadvantages of, of particular schools or educational theories. Mm-hmm. You can find, you know, all kinds of discussions, criticism in particular, of internal criticism, on the internet that wouldn't make it, wouldn't have made it to print, and that's going to start changing how print works as well, because print is going to have to compete with the internet, um, and. Uh, and once it does, it's going to have to... It might have to open up some of its some of its restrictions also, but, you know, who knows exactly how that's going to play out. Okay. We've got to wait and see. Uh,
0: again, the book does uh, focus largely on uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, ultra-Orthodox community in North America. One imagines also the Anglo-Saxon ultra-Orthodox community here, a little distinction. Ha- what does the book have to tell us in... The modern Orthodox community. What are the differences? I mean, between between uh, uh, what's happening in one segment of Orthodoxy versus that in another Orthodoxy, and what might we in the modern Orthodox community have to learn from the successes and or failures? And then, on the flip side, how does the picture of American ultra Orthodoxy differ from the Israeli
1: counterpart? So, let me start with number one, with some slightly, you know, disorganized thoughts. Um, some of them are a little polemical. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, personally, that part of the reason why I'm fascinated by this is because I saw it and I said, this is not me. In the same way that I talk about how much of this literature sets up others, capital O, others, against which to define themselves, the Haredi community uses Uh, the secular culture, which it often, you know, gets completely wrong, but a single generalization about secular culture so that we know that where we, the Haredi community, are better and different. Um, So in part, my interest in this is because as a modern Orthodox Jew, I was interested in understanding something about what I'm not. Um, And in part, often I see a much more honest conversation within the modern Orthodox community. People who are not trying to dress up their parenting advice is Torah, even though it's coming from late 20th century. They're willing to say, this is late 20th century parenting advice, and you know what? If the Midrashim say that you should hit your kids, don't hit your kids, even though the Midrashim say that you should. Um, and the Haredi literature that I study is, has a lot more trouble with that. So I see a kind of a more honest conversation often. It's mm, kind of parenting guides. The yeah. parenting guides are historiography. Modern orthodox historiography has its agenda also. Um, but, but it tends to be much more grounded in the way things actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of that is you know, a little bit polemical. Um, part of it, I also see a, a certain gap in that if we talk about these economic models in which a religious community succeeds to the extent that it gets its message out there in a media that's effective and it reaches the community, and the effort to reach the community with media is going to transform part of the message, um, well the modern orthodox community to a very large degree has left popular culture and popular literature up to the Haredi community the modern orthodox community popular Jewish, culture. popular Jewish culture
0: because the modern orthodox community is right. much more open to consuming general, general culture, so, in general culture. so if
1: I can listen to uh, you know if I can listen to the regular radio stations what do I need the you know uh, the Haredi musicians for um which means that much of modern Orthodox culture is, is again, despite the problems with the definition of high culture, it's heavily footnoted articles. It's books like my own which <laughs> I try to be accessible and avoid the culture studies jargon but, you know, it's still a heavily footnoted book. Um, and, and the modern Orthodox community spends a lot of effort on halachic analysis on, on academic analysis on Jewish philosophy and the like um, and not and, and we've kind of created this kind of small group of intellectually elite modern orthodox very serious people um, talking to each other talking to each other and how do we get that out to the community and when our community is using you know the art scroll sitter and reading art scroll history books and and reading art scroll Shkafa books so we've kind of let them win that media battle. can modern orthodoxy gain something by you know by writing its own spy novels which might actually be Better because the authors are likely to spend more time reading real yeah, quality but, literature. But
0: there the economic question, the market question, right. comes back: is there is, is there, there a sufficient market of people that so are going to be
1: interested in such? A thing? Right. So you know that's a critical question. Ultimately, the market is going to determine you know what gets right. bought and what gets sold.
0: On the art scroll question, I'll, I'll just mention as a footnote here your review essay, which appeared a year ago in the Jewish Review of Books about the new. Sachs Corain Sidur. That
1: was in First Things. Oh,
0: I'm sorry, in First Things, uh, and that can Jewish be found. Review of
1: books was a review of a different book on art school. Like Jeremy
0: uh-huh. uh, In in First Things, uh, uh, which can be found online, firstthings.com, dot com, um, about the I think
1: it was entitled Sidur Wars or something uh, no, like that. It was a. You
0: know, it, uh, it was a
1: study of the art school Sidur and the uh, and the um, and the new Rabbi Sachs Corin. Yes. Uh, Sitter. It's called a prayer book of our own, I think. Okay. Um,
0: Um, In terms of the Israel-America divide? um,
1: Right. To a great degree. Let me point out two other things on that. First of all, um, I think that the modern Orthodox community is doing a lot of the same things that I pointed out in this literature. Um, Meaning, the modern Orthodox community is also buying into the kosherized Jewish version of you know, of lots of things. Often we consume the Haridi versions, but we're also interested in, you know, kind of getting Torah to say what it is that we want to hear um, about certain kinds of topics, although sometimes the discourse uh, is a little different. Um, um, In terms of the parallels and the differences to the Israeli scene, as a gross generalization, the Israeli Haridi community tends to be more isolationist. With that, there's a lot of cross-pollination. Some of the spy novels that I talk about are translated from the original Hebrew. Many of the you know, self-help books are translated into Hebrew from the original English. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of cross-pollination. And the same dynamics of, of you know, marking yourself as different while really being the same, borrowing all kinds of ideas from general pop psychology, dressing them up as Torah, that exists in the Israeli-Haridi community also. Um, There are a lot of things, some of the things, some of the cutting-edge stuff, um, you know, that kind of started in in Israel, in America, made its way to Israel. The Jewish Observer started, and Mishpacha magazine in Israel was, you know, overtook it, passed it on the left. Mm I... But I think some of the cutting-edge stuff hasn't quite happened. Past on the left, you not, not being ideological. Not oh, being ideological, yes, a yeah. metaphor for driving. Yeah. But uh, um, Although also on the left, uh-huh. Mishpacha is in some ways um, much more open in its internal criticism, willing to say some things that the Jewish observer was not quite willing to say, um, and was therefore often more interesting, right. um, and was also willing to to pander the Jewish observer perceived itself as a much more middle-brow. And, you know, Mishpacha has never claimed to be anything but a, you know, light magazine. Right. Um, I, but I think some of the cutting-edge stuff that's happening in America is, you know, more reluctant, reluctantly happening here. The idea of working for a living, for example, is you know, much more ideologically loaded in Israel. Yeah. The whole presentation of working Haridim. Uh, which is taken for granted in the American community has to be treaded right. much more lightly right. um, in the Israeli context. Right.
0: Now, Dr. Finkelman, you've been accused of being polemical. Uh, you've been accused of being anti-Haredi. Uh, is this true? Would you like to say a word to your to your critics? Um, uh, what, what's your own motivation? I,
1: I will say as follows. Um, I have become more critical over the years um, in the sense that the book came out, I think, more critical than I expected it to when I first started 10 years ago. Um, some, of my, um, uh, some of my cultural despisers, if you will, uh, within the Haredi community who read the manuscript and read the book um, were disappointed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they felt that I was coming down too hard. Uh, in various places. Um, uh, I, I cannot say honestly that I, I think some Haridim and some Haridi authors are likely to feel like this is not the Haridi community or ideology that they they're not going to see themselves uh, here. Um, and in part, I think you know, a good, a good analysis will also always make an attempt to make sure that the analysis is at least comprehensible to the group of people you're trying to analyze. On the other hand, one of the jobs of you know good good sociology or good cultural analysis is to say you, know, you haven't quite understood yourself in a way that you know in, in ways that are as sharp as they might be. So I don't have a problem with that. Um, I've tried to be fair. I don't think you know I'm sure that I've made mistakes, as every author says, I'm sure there are mistakes and I apologize for them, but I've tried to be fair. Um, um, a little controversy doesn't bother me. Uh, the, you know, the, the the sociologist or the academic in me wants to kind of be purely objective. You know, not that people really believe that that exists anymore, but the purely objective outsider just you know calling them as I see them. Uh The modern Orthodox Jew in me doesn't mind. You know, doesn't mind stirring up the pot a little bit. Um, you know, I think there are some things in this literature that are just flat out dishonest. Um, I think there are presentations of things, in which I point to, of people who misrepresent themselves. Um, and I think one of the jobs of, you know, of good cultural analysis is to point out where people are misrepresenting themselves yeah. or where things are more simple than people's self-understanding and if it ruffles little feathers, so be it. What do you see in the, in the
0: ever-changing world of media, particularly in light of, of new media? It's hard, harder and harder to look down the road. But what do you foresee as some of the trends in popular culture, Haredi popular culture, modern Orthodox popular culture, Jewish popular culture? Uh, we, you know, we've seen, you know, th- things come and go. While we're talking about the rise of the Haredi popular culture, on other on other ways, you know, with the closing of certain websites and, and other things in the secular Jewish culture world. Uh, that's an interesting parallel phenomena. Uh, uh, how do how do you see the map of Jewish
1: culture yeah. largely Neil, in the coming years? Yogi Berra or <laughs> Niels Bohr who said the most difficult thing of all to predict is the future. Okay. Um, so I don't want to go too far out on a limb, but I'll I'll talk about one thing. It's interesting. One of the first publishers I sent the book to uh, didn't want it in part because they said the situation is changing. Yeah, By the time we get the book out, it's going to be out of date, which I don't think is quite true. But I, there are already things that are happening. Uh, for example, blurring of boundaries between uh, this gray space between the Haredi community and the Modern Orthodox community, um, I think we're likely to see much more cooperation. Um, that's already happening. Earthscroll is doing some of the distribution for Kahal books, which is publishing YU and Modern Orthodox related stuff, and, and Artscroll is doing some of the popu- some of the, you know, some of the publicity and the distribution and the production.
0: Um,
1: um, so, uh, people who I've spoken to, you know, uh, were, you know, didn't want to get into the exact details of who's doing what, but yeah.
0: I mean, you so look at those books, they, they, the graphic feel of them are right. indistinguishable
1: from an art school, Right. Book. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that's happening. I think in areas Which, like... Which, again, may
0: have a uh, certain market motivation.
1: For sure has a market uh, motivation. Um, you know, art school is very happy to continue selling books to people who are willing to buy them. Um, and so they're not going to put Art Scroll seal of approval on, you know, a book uh, published by YU people, because that might affect their branding, but if they can you know, if they can earn a profit um, and I suspect also, you know, ideologically, deep down, you know, we're all good observant Jews, and they're happy to see things get spread, and they're happy to make a buck. Um, but I think also in things, you know, music... I'm thinking of that old Purim
0: Purim satire of the Art Scroll Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> Which the
1: listener can Google and find. Yes. Um, the, um, um, but I think, you know, gray area in music, there are websites that are crossing, um, you know, that are, and blogs that are having conversations that are happening at the borders mm-hmm. uh, between. I think, um, you know, publishers, especially as, mark- as, as dollars for books get, you know, scarcer and scarcer uh, in an internet age, uh, you know, publishers are going to be willing to try to work with, you know, more liberal elements to get stuff out. Um, musicians uh, who are going out on a limb or who are cooperating. Uh, you know, Mordechai Ben M- 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 David is getting a lot of, you know, cooperation with with not openly Orthodox Israeli musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, and the like. That kind of Blurring of the boundaries is one of the things that's happening. You know, postmodernists would say, well, that's inevitable. This kind of postmodern collapsing of boundaries and identities. I, I wouldn't quite take it that far. I don't think you know a, a self-contained or relatively self-contained 3 community is going to disappear. But I think the borders are going to continue to get fuzzier.
0: Okay. And you think that culture and popular culture is are,
1: are one of the forces that's both driving it and also a reflection of it. One of the things that I also try to put forward is the idea that, is that popular culture reflects a, re- a community that's out there. Like a historian would say, I can learn something about the community from the culture that it produces, but it's also driving changes. Mm-hmm. The, the, the media affect what the community is. They don't just reflect what the community is. And you know, if, if, if one way to get to people is to create good Jewish rock music, with all the apparent contradictions that are built into that, then that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it has been happening. And happened. it has been happening, and you know, people are making money doing it.
0: Anything else the reader needs to know to take away from our discussion of Strictly um, Kosher
1: Reading? No, other than see if you can get your hands on a <laughs> copy of the book. and uh,
0: So again, visit www.strictlykosherreading.blogspot.com for more on the book and links to... Purchase the book and to download some of the material and sample uh, sample that uh, the book is strictly kosher reading popular literature and the condition of contemporary orthodoxy by the uh, academic studies press by Dr. Joel Finkelman our good friends we hope to have you back on the program soon until then shana tova.